men speak, O Lord. In so many ways, um, the words of that song and of other songs we have sung today in our service um, capture some of the big themes of the book of Acts that we are about to start this morning. When you think of the book of Acts, what do you think of? Some may say um, the Holy Spirit. Some may say the growth of the church. And both of them are big time present in the book of Acts. Others might say um, wonders and miracles, and they are big in the book of Acts. But at a deeper level, there is a more central theme that is running through the entire book of Acts. So what is Acts about? Our aim today is to get familiar with, our, uh, with the whole picture of the book of Acts and to see the big framework before we start looking at the individual passages. Next week, we will look at chapter 1, and uh, then we'll look at chapter 2 after that. But today, we are looking at a broad scheme, at a broad picture of the book of Acts. What is Acts about? I invite you to open your Bibles to chapter 1. We'll read the first eight verses of chapter 1. And then we will turn to chapter 28, the last chapter, um, from verses 23 to 31. Aren't you glad we're not reading the whole book of Acts this morning? You know we are not afraid at Park Hills to read long passages of Scripture. <clears throat> but it would take us about two and a half hours to read through the book of Acts. I hope you will take the challenge to do so on your own. If you haven't done this this past week, I encourage you to do it this next week. Read through the book of Acts in one sitting. Well, here's the word of the Lord for, our, for us this morning as we begin. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now turn to Acts 28. We will read from verse 23. Apostle Paul is in Rome. And seeking to speak to the Jews about Christ. So in verse 23, chapter 28, we read, When they had appointed a day for him, namely for Paul, they, namely the Jews, came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, 
From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is how the book of Acts closes. Praise be to God. Would you join me, join me in prayer and asking the Lord Jesus by His Spirit to speak to us once again? Our gracious Father, we thank You that You have sent Christ to us to redeem us, and when he departed, he commissioned his disciples to proclaim his word. And he gave the Holy Spirit to give them the power to do so. Lord Jesus, we need your Holy Spirit in these very moments to once again bring to life to us and speak to us in fresh ways your word so that we might listen. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow, what is Acts about? To answer this question, we must look at verse 1 that we started reading. I heard some of you say it's about the church. It is about the church, but it's more than about the church. The church definitely has a huge, huge role in the book of Acts. But we must understand what role that is. To understand the big picture of Acts and the underlying foundations of the book of Acts, we must look at verse 1. And remember that prior to writing Acts, Luke wrote a gospel. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So Luke not only wrote uh, Acts, but also another book. Can you guess what that other book was? The gospel, according to Luke. But what this verse tells us is that we really should be reading the gospel of Luke together with the book of Acts as one story. They are one story. We shouldn't read the gospel and then sort of close the book. We should keep on reading and see what happened after Jesus ascended to the Father. The book of Acts happened. One of the best summaries of Luke and Acts together is given by the most unexpected person 
by an old man ready to die. His name was Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit told him that he would not see death until he would see the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he saw Jesus as an infant brought to the temple, Simeon being led to the temple that day under the power of the Holy Spirit, and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is what Luke Acts is about. One sentence with three parts. I would like to summarize and restate Simeon's answer in one sentence with three parts. Listen carefully for the three parts. Salvation has been prepared by God. Salvation has been prepared by God in Christ to be presented to all people. That's what Luke and Acts is all about. This is a storyline. Salvation has been prepared by God in Christ to be presented to all people. No other author of the New Testament makes so much reference to God's salvation than Luke. That's why John Stott um, said that Luke is a theologian of salvation. If the gospel of Luke focuses on the salvation prepared by God and prepared in Christ, Acts focuses on this salvation being presented to all the peoples. But when Acts focuses on the, how this salvation is presented to all the peoples, Acts keeps going back to the truth that this salvation has been prepared by God, it has been prepared in Christ, and it's presented to all people. Acts is a story of God's salvation taken to the ends of the earth. So it's not coincidental that the story of Acts uh, starts with a proclamation of this salvation in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and ends in Rome, the capital of the greatest empire of that time. Acts is a story of the expansion of salvation prepared by God in Christ to be presented to all people. But who are the players of this salvation? What is Acts telling us about the players of this salvation? Who are its heroes? Well, I have to disappoint you, it is not the apostles. I know from the title you would think that it's about the apostles. It's so not about the apostles. Actually, um, the phrase, Acts of the Apostles, the title was not given in the original manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts we have, all they, they include is simply Acts. But it doesn't tell us who's Acts. Some have said it might, be the act, it might be more appropriate to call them the act of the Holy Spirit. And that would for sure be a little more appropriate. But I think there is something even bigger for us to realize. When we think of whose acts do we read about in the book of Acts, it's a salvation prepared by God in Christ, presented to all people. 
And I'd like to, for us to look at five truths about this salvation. And who are the heroes? Who is, who's the big player in the book of Acts? Salvation prepared by God. Salvation prepared by God. Acts tells us um, of what Jesus taught between his resurrection and ascension. Imagine, Jesus is now resurrected. The Holy Spirit will be given to them soon. And Jesus gives them some instructions about the Holy Spirit as well. But for 40 days, what is he talking about to the disciples? Look at verse 3. It's in your Bible. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And later, a few verses later, the apostles ask, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore to Israel the kingdom? This is how Acts starts, talking about the kingdom of God. But how does Acts end? Remember, turn to verse 38, uh, chapter 28, verse 31. This is how Acts ends, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Friends, if we want to understand the book of Acts, we must understand it on the foundation of the Old Testament and the promises God had made to bring about his kingdom on earth. God promised from the beginning of the Old Testament that he will rescue his people and that he will come to reign among his people. What, what do you call that thing where God reigns? God's kingdom. And when God promises that he will come back and he will reign among his people, that's God's kingdom on earth. From the, old, the beginning of the, Old Testament, we, of the Old Testament, we see many promises of what God will do to bring about his kingdom. That's why in Acts, one of the features we see over and over again is that of fulfillment. Fulfillment. The events happening in the book of Acts are a fulfillment of what God revealed earlier in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, think with me, for those of you who read already the book of Acts, when Peter gets up to explain Judas's um, this defection from the twelve, where does he go to to explain this event? He goes to the Old Testament. When Peter um, talks about the Holy Spirit and explaining what has happened in Acts 2, where does he go to explain it? To the Old Testament, to the book of Joel. When he goes to explain to them the resurrection and why it had to happen, where does he go? He go to the, goes to the Psalms to say that God had prophesied it through, the, through, through David. And this goes on in the book of Acts over and over and over again until you get to the very end and, and Paul speaks about the Jews that have rejected the Christ. How do you explain that? And Paul, what does he do? He goes back to the book of Isaiah to explain and say it had to happen because this is what God had prophesied. Friends, time and again, here's the point, Acts happened as fulfillment of what God determined long ago. So that the foundation of Acts is God and His plan. Let me give you an illustration. 
from the book of Acts about God and his plan as the foundation of this book. Chapter 5, the apostles are threatened by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so fed up with them that they are about to kill them. And Gamaliel intervenes. He's one of the Pharisees, one of the members of the council. And he intervenes. And here's what he says in chapter 5, verse 35. I'm going to read a few verses. If you're able to turn there, read with me. It's a fascinating story that really sets us up for the book of Acts. Men of Israel, Gamaliel said, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in those days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man... It will fail. But it is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel's reasoning was able to persuade the Pharisees not to do any harm to these, uh, to these disciples. But the question he asked is, is heavy. Will their plan fail? Will their plan fail? The rest of the book of Acts answers this kind of question that Gamaliel sort of set up for us. Acts tells us that the spread of the gospel could not be stopped. Men will fight this plan. Men will oppose this plan. Acts proves that this opposition from men can be very painful even causing death, as in the case of Stephen and James. It can even bring down the member role of the church, as in Acts 8, when the church in Jerusalem was scattered, and the only ones who were still left in Jerusalem were the apostles. The membership role of the church in Acts 8 was diminished. The opposition from men can do this stuff. But when you get to Acts 28 which, by the way, it's 30 years later. So you get a sense of 30 years. When you get to Acts 28, where's the gospel? Not just in Jerusalem. It's in Rome. By who? By who is it proclaimed there? By the former persecutor of the church. The power of the gospel had the ability to bring in even the persecutors of the church and bring them to Christ. Will this plan fail? Will their plan fail? Oh, friends, what does the book of Acts tell us about Gamaliel's reasoning and the way Gamaliel set it up? It shows us whose plans these are. It hasn't failed. It proves it's God's plans. But think further. Think of yourself. Think of us here. 2,000 years later, we still preach this gospel. It has reached us. The plan of God has not failed. Why? Because it's God's plan. 
And God's plan cannot fail. That's what the book of Acts is about. I know the book of Acts is about the church. I know it's about the Holy Spirit. But we must see a deeper foundation that sets up the book of Acts. It's a plan of God. I love what David Peterson, one of the commentators on the book, said. Acts is about God's activity in fulfilling of Scripture. Acts is about God's activity in fulfillment of Scripture. Now, this has huge implications for us. Huge implications for us as a church. When we look at the book of Acts as a recipe for church growth, and boy, there are many who do that. It's not necessarily wrong to do that. I'm not saying it's wrong. When we look at the book of Acts as a recipe for church growth, we should be careful of not looking only at what the apostles did as if they caused these things to happen. If we look only at the human element, we miss the most important part. The foundation of what happened in Acts was God and His plan. It was God and His sovereign plan to extend His kingdom to the ends of the age, and men cannot make this plan fail. Even when the disciples themselves had a hard time with seeing the gospel being given to the Gentiles, God's plan was not going to fail. The growth of the church in Acts was not based on the apostles. It was based on what God had planned. The gospel grew in Acts not because the apostles had goals and plans and strategies and vision statements. (laughs) Vision statements in Acts. Prayer hour, yeah, but not vision statements. They had a hard time when God said, I'm I'm serious about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter had a hard time with it. And he knew it. He still had a hard time with it. Now, friends, I'm not against having goals and thinking strategically. Please do not misunderstand. But I tell you what I do have a problem with. When we say that if we don't have goals, we will fail as if the condition for our success is to have goals. You heard the phrase, people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. And we bring that to the church. That is the gospel according to Peter Drucker. It's not the gospel according to Luke or the gospel according to Peter and Paul. The gospel according to Luke tells us that the reason why the apostles succeeded in their plan was not because of what they did. It was because of what God had planned to do. The gospel grew in Acts because this was God's plan. Why did it grow quickly in some cities and why not in others? Why did the Spirit prohibit Paul from speaking in one place but let him to go in another place? This was God's plan. We don't understand it. We're sometimes amazed by it and surprised by it. But this is God's plan. Friends, this strong conviction about God as the foundation of Acts also explains the strong focus the apostles gave to prayer. Over and over again, you see in Acts a church devoted to prayer. When you read their prayers, they are different than ours. Their prayers were filled with Scripture because they were convinced in God's ability to fulfill the Scriptures. 
when we keep this focus on the plan of God in mind, we will understand why, even though the apostles had power to perform miracles, they also experienced great suffering and great death. You know, I'm amazed. We, we would love to see the church grow today as it grew in the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts also, the church paid a lot of price in suffering and persecution. And the boldness of their speaking was so bold that it did bring persecution. Today, we are afraid of speaking boldly about Christ for fear of not um, turning someone away. So we want a soft entrance, everybody, into the kingdom. Read the book of Acts. There is no soft entrance into the kingdom. So when we want the growth of the church of Acts, we should also be prepared to do some of the other things and experience some of the other things that the book of Acts experienced. But why is it? Why is it, for instance, that in chapter 12, Herod killed James, but Peter got away by being rescued the very last minute in a miraculous way? Why is it that Stephen was stoned to death in chapter 7, even though he was full of the Holy Spirit? Why wasn't he restored to life as Dorcas was in chapter 9, or as Eutychus was brought to life after he fell down from the third floor, for he fell asleep at Paul's preaching? Why wasn't Stephen, why wasn't he brought back to life? That's God's plan. We don't know. Why did miracles happen in one place but not in another? The only explanation we have is not the Spirit. Because Stephen had the Spirit as much as anybody else did. The only explanation we have is the sovereign plan of God. That's how God determined it. That's how God wanted it. So when we think of the book of Acts, it's not just the Spirit that we should go to quickly. It's not just the church we should go to quickly. There are some more foundational things we should keep in mind. And the first one is God and His plan to bring about His kingdom. It will not fail. Truth number two, salvation prepared in Christ. And by the way, for those of you who are looking at the watch and realize I have five things and I'm only at point two, they're not the same length, so don't worry about it. We'll and if you're worried about um, beating the Methodists to lunch, we got lunch prepared for you, so there's nothing to, to really worry about. Point number two, salvation prepared in Christ. God planned for the salvation. God prepared it, but in who? In Christ. Even though the Holy Spirit plays an essential role in the book of Acts, an essential role. What is the focus of the Holy Spirit in Acts? It's not the Holy Spirit. The focus of the Holy Spirit is Christ. That's what Jesus says. That's why I'm sending you the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit will be sent to you, you will be my witnesses. So, friends, the focus of the Holy Spirit in Acts is on Christ and His Word, which His disciples proclaimed. Something the Gospel is about Jesus and Acts is about the Holy Spirit. Such a division is not very accurate. That's why Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And the book of Acts is a journey of how the disciples were witnesses to Jesus from Jerusalem to Rome. 
Why is there such a big focus on Christ even in the book of Acts? Because Christ obtained the salvation for us. Because Christ obtained the salvation for us. In Acts, this salvation is described as the offer for the forgiveness of sins. Look at that phrase, the forgiveness of sins. When you read Acts, re look for it. How many times it shows up? A lot. In Acts um, 3, uh, or Peter speaks in Acts 3 uh, to the lame beggar. He says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins... Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Forgiveness of sins, the blotting out of our sins. Friends, our sins are not simply a missing of the mark. We, we know that phrase quite a lot. Our sins are deeper than that. Our sins have offended God. Our sins have assaulted God. Our sins have made us enemies of God. We need the blotting out of our sins. We need the forgiveness of our sins. But here's the point. A perfectly just God cannot forgive wrongdoing. A perfectly just God cannot forgive wrongdoing. And yet the apostles start preaching the forgiveness of sins and the promise of having our sins blotted out. How come? Why? How is this possible? The answer is because Christ paid for them in our behalf. Friends, this is the amazing news of the gospel. That's why the offer of the forgiveness of sins is found only in Christ. God cannot forgive us outside of Christ. God cannot forgive us outside of what Christ has done in our place. That's why Peter, in chapter 4, verse 12, says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts is huge about the centrality of Christ for receiving this salvation. Salvation prepared by God in Christ. But then a salvation presented to all people. This is the third part of this story of salvation. Salvation presented to all people. How does this salvation reach the ends of the earth? Well, the apostles of Jesus needed two elements. They needed the Word of Jesus, and they needed the Spirit of God. The Spirit's coming to disciples creates a major wave in taking the gospel to all people. Luke refers to the Spirit 50-plus times just in the book of Acts more than any other New Testament writer. And unlike any of the other New Testament authors, Luke is the only one who will tell us about the special coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. No other book of the New Testament makes such a big deal about the coming of the Spirit as Luke does. And besides the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost, the Spirit is given, or the Spirit is shown to be given three more times in Acts not to tell us about subsequent comings of the Spirit in, in, in ways that sometimes today we think of, but really to make a major point. In each of the times the Holy Spirit is given, subsequent to the Pentecost, so Pentecost happens, then three more times it happens. Not to tell us that we need to be looking for the Spirit to come four times. That's not the point. But in each of those times, it happens once in Samaria, once in Caesarea, once in Ephesus. The whole point is 
to make these Jews understand that the very same salvation that they received and was confirmed to them on Pentecost was now being extended to the nations. So the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is to guarantee that the salvation prepared by God in Christ, which was first offered to the Jews, indeed was extended to the Gentiles. This was the big conclusion reached at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. That story is told three times in the book of Acts. That's a big deal. And yet, Jesus makes it very clear that the intent of sending the Holy Spirit was to empower the apostles in proclaiming His Word and testifying about Him so that the disciples could take this Word to the Gentiles. The apostles could take the salvation to the ends of the earth despite great opposition. This is what the Spirit enabled them to do. That's why through Acts, we see that under the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of the Lord increased. The Word of the Lord increased. This is a huge phrase in the book of Acts. The Word of the Lord increased. Not the church. The Word of the Lord increased. Now, the church did increase. It's clear that we have many references that the Lord added people to their numbers. Very clear. But it's phenomenal why in the book of Acts, what is told as increasing is the word of the Lord. Let me read to you just some references in, in chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Chapter 19, 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Friends, the focus on the growth of the Word of the Lord is the reason why we see in Acts so many sermons recorded. Have you ever noticed, if you read Acts in one sitting, how many sermons are recorded in Acts? It's like being at a conference, and you get a, a compilation of sermons. I'm like, What's up with all these sermons? By the way, if you don't like listening to sermons, you may have a hard time reading the book of Acts, because there's a lot of sermons in there. There's a lot of history about the Old Testament, a lot of sermons based on the Old Testament. Read Stephen's sermon. It's 99.9% .9 about the Old Testament. So if you, if you don't like listening to sermons, you may have a hard time with it. Uh, but after all, this is what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to do. Remember, Jesus said, when the Spirit will come, you will be my witnesses. You will have power to proclaim my word. Why would we be surprised that we would see so many sermons in the book of Acts? By the way, if you put all the sermons in the book of Acts together, you have about one-third of the book. Lots of sermons. Now, besides these references to the Word of God increasing, we also see, as I mentioned, references where the Lord adds new believers to the church so that often in Acts, the growth of the Word results in the numeric growth of the church. But I want to be cautious here. I want to, I want to say a big caution. Today, not every numerical growth is necessarily a result of the growth of the Word. How do I know this? Because I listen to what people put their confidence in when it comes to growing the church. I hear people say that in order to build a church, you need music, you need programs, you need social events, you need fun attractions. I've even heard some say uh, three things you need um, to grow the church. 
good preaching, good music, and good greeting ministry. Either those of you who are on the greeters ministry, no, this is, you know, the, the growth of this church is on your shoulders. But I've heard this. I'm not making this up. Friends, it's amazing to notice in a book that focuses so much on the growth of the church, it's amazing to notice the absolute absence of any reference to music in Acts. Especially where the growth of the church was mentioned so much. But today we put our confidence in growing a church by the kind of music ministry we have. A pastor told me, uh, the music guy you hire, he'll either grow your church or you guys will stay at where you are. Plain and simple. I don't want to sugarcoat it to you. We have put our confidence today on other things than the Word of God. That's why I am greatly cautious when I hear church growth language. I'm happy to go with what Acts talks about. I'm very happy to talk about that. But in the book of Acts, the numeric growth of the church happens as a result of the Word of the Lord growing. So, I would tell you three things for the church to grow based on the book of Acts. The Word proclaimed, and not just here in the pulpit. When you go home, when you're in home groups, when you are in one-on-one discipling, when you are meeting with other people, the, home, the Word of the Lord proclaimed, starting here and echoing into your conversations. That's the first one. The second thing you need for the, for the church to grow so you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, of our inadequacy. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our need for the Savior. We need the Spirit to grow the church. And the third thing you need to grow the church is the plan of God. The plan of God. Why are some churches growing than others? Both might be being faithful in the Word. In both, the Holy Spirit might be present. It's simply God's plan to keep up to a, a church a particular size and other churches to grow. The Word, the Spirit, and God's plan, that's what you need to grow a church. Nothing else should be put in that category. So the salvation presented in Acts is prepared by God in Christ, presented to all people through the Spirit and through the Word. But when we read about the salvation in Acts, there are two more elements that are emphasized. For the, the, the fourth element is this, the response to salvation. Besides a focus on the word of the Lord announced by the disciples, Acts focuses on the required response men need to make when they hear this word. In Acts 2, as Peter was preaching, the, audio, the audience was cut to the heart and asked Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, if these things are true, if the word of the Lord is preached, we should also make clear what shall they do as a response. The word of the Lord has a bearing upon us. Because of our corrupt condition, when the word of God meets us, it has a demand of us, of all of us, no matter how many times we've listened to it. And that demand is to turn around for our own ways, embrace Christ and his ways. And that's not just about one decision we make once. It is a lifestyle of turning to the Lord. It is a lifestyle of repentance. It is a lifestyle of faith. Peter says, that's why he says in, in chapter 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the, Je of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. We need to be preaching the word in such a way that we tell people, you must respond to this. You can't just leave it there. I pray, to, dear friends, that if you have been here today and heard the gospel preached to you, what Christ has done for us, for our salvation, that you would respond to Christ. That you would turn to Christ and do something about it. I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of these truths. And it's not in one particular way, raising a hand or, or coming down the aisle. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in you. And when that has happened truly and honestly, I think it needs to show it. It's through baptism. That's how you make it known. That's how you make it visible that you have turned your life to Christ. And then, it's of course through obedience. The repentance that the faith calls for is not just a decision. It's a new obedience to Christ. In Acts, true faith is not a decision we make for Christ. True repentance and faith is a response that grows and matures until the end of life. So one of the signs of true repentance and faith is perseverance. That's why um, when, when Paul recounts his own story of how he uh, took the gospel to the Gentiles, he says in Acts 26 to King Agrippa, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul is not turning to legalism here. He is simply saying that true repentance and faith in Christ is made visible not only through our baptism, but then through our deeds, through our new obedience to Christ. Friends, we must make clear that the salvation of God in Christ presented to all people calls for a response. But then the fifth truth that Acts emphasizes, and this is the last one, it's a result of salvation. We've seen the salvation prepared by God in Christ presented to all people, a salvation that demands a response or calls for a response, but fifthly, a salvation that results into something. What's the result of this salvation proclaimed in the book of Acts? the church. The church. The salvation of God when proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit to the nations, and when it is accepted, it always results in the formation of churches. So that the mission of the church is missions, but the mission of missions is the church. I think I found that phrase somewhere I listened to. I didn't come up with it, right? So don't, don't quote me for that. It's mine. I heard it somewhere. But I thought it's good, a good one. The mission of the church is missions. But the mission of missions is the church. This means that accepting God's salvation is not simply a matter of conversion. Did you get that? Accepting God's salvation is not just a matter of conversion. If we preach the gospel as if the church is an accessory to the gospel, we're missing something crucial about the gospel. 
Because the result of the gospel, when faithful preach, will always lead to the formation of churches. The salvation of God is such a revolutionary act in our lives that it changes not only the center of our lives, but the nature and the way of our life. Those who have experienced God's salvation start living life together in the community of the saints. That's why Acts tells us not only that the mission of the church is missions, but also that the mission of missions is the church. Now, we as a church will be challenged in many ways by this book, and I want to conclude with this thought, because the book of Acts will challenge us. It will speak to the life of the church. We will be challenged to make the gospel clear and explicit and call people to repentance and faith, not just to a decision, but to repentance and faith as a new life that God gives them. We will be challenged by that. We will be challenged to realize that evangelism is not just a spiritual gift. But when the Holy Spirit is in us, you're given power to speak about Jesus. If you don't have power to speak about Jesus, you should ask and examine, what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? It's serious. The book of Acts is serious. You got the Spirit, you're going to speak about Jesus. It's very simple. There's no Greek in between that I need to translate for you. You got the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak about Jesus. Now, yes, some will do more than others. I get that. But if you got the Holy Spirit, you will speak about Jesus. So the book of Acts will challenge us in a sense. We will also be challenged as a church to think not only about our missions and outreach, but also about our internal priorities as a church. What do we devote ourselves to? The apostles devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We will be challenged to think about where we place our confidence for fulfilling God's plan. Is it our strategies, our programs, our resources, or is it God's sovereign control? We will be challenged to think biblically about less pleasant issues, how to deal with sin, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, how to deal with crises, like the complaints of chapter 6 about the care given to certain widows, or like the threats, like those given to Peter and Paul or Stephen, these persecutions, like death. We will be challenged to think about church leadership, especially as Paul will teach the elders of Ephesus in chapter 20. Now, even though these issues seem to be internal to the church, I want to state a point that may not be obvious to some. How we deal with the internal needs of the church affects our witness and testimony and the efficiency in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, in Acts, we get a manual not only about missions and church planting, we also get a manual about church health. You know why? Because the church is God's evangelism program. If you want to see a healthy evangelism program that produces fruit, look at the church it produces. When you see healthy churches, that's a result of healthy evangelism. And healthy churches will produce healthy evangelism and healthy missions. That's what Acts will challenge us. Not to separate missions and church life, but bring them together. Because the church is God's evangelism program in the book of Acts. I pray that you would be encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged as we see how the mission of God will not fail. That's our confidence. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, we praise you because you have given your church such a treasure, such a treasure in the book of Acts to be able to read, meditate, and learn about how you have brought your plan of salvation, which you have prepared in Christ for all the earth, how you brought that plan to be known to the ends of the age and to the ends of the earth. Gracious God, we pray that as we begin this series, would you use this word to challenge us as a congregation, challenge us in missions, challenge us in evangelism, challenge us in making the gospel clear and explicit, challenge us in being healthy churches that reflect your character and nature so that the gospel might indeed go forth. Lord, we repent of putting our confidence in anything else than your sovereign will and plan. We want to bring our confidence back to your word, empowered by your spirit, so that when we experience these in our lives, we can rest assured and wait patiently that you will bring about the results that you intend. O oh, great God, to you we look. To your name, your name we proclaim. And it is from you that we expect and wait to see great results. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's our hope that